0: Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I am Tara Bowen-Biggs, here as always with Blazer's outsider, Danny Meringue. But wait, there's more. We have a special guest with us this episode, formerly of Blazer's Edge, formerly of Sports Illustrated, co-host of the Open Floor podcast, the new national NBA writer for the Washington Post on the other line. Ben Golliver. What's hey. up, man?
2: Not too much, Tara. So I feel like a lot has changed. So we did this podcast together last year. And now you're hosting Meeting Greets, where I, I assume you're just signing autographs for all the young girls around the Portland metro area who wanna kind of be at uh in your spot as a podcast host. And Danny's got a TV show. So I don't know. I need to step my game up here. I feel like you guys are just rocketing uh, rocketing up the uh, career paths.
0: I don't know. I feel like uh, heading to the Washington Post is a pretty big career leap. That's really exciting.
2: It was. And, I, and my head is still spinning, but it's it's very cool. And, you know, I appreciate you guys having me on. I love to talk hoops. And, you know, I, there's been a lot of news, I feel like, Blazers-wise, uh, at least this season, whether it's, you know, the Paul Allen situation or... Uh, another year where we're getting all these Groundhog Day articles about, oh, it's the same old team, it's the same old team. Now everybody wants to trade Damian again. Everybody wants to trade CJ again. People are down on Nurkic. Evan Turner seems like he might actually have some fans. It's just there's a lot going on.
0: Oh, don't forget Myers Leonard.
2: Oh yeah, breakthrough. <laughs> you know,
0: he, can I, can I this is the year. Eyes? This is the year.
2: Look, I'm going to be Myers Leonard uh, Myers Leonard slander free on this podcast. You know, he he actually this congratulates- is the Myers
0: Leonard slander free zone.
2: Okay, perfect, because he he congratulated me on the job. I thought that was such a class move by him. He definitely did not have to do that. And I really appreciated it. So, uh, you know, there are humans behind those, you know, eight figure checks who, uh, you know, tend to get booed uh, on a regular basis, at least earlier in his career. Uh, But I thought that was a very class move by him.
0: Yeah. Well, to get right into it, now the last time you were on our show, you did break a little news, and that is that we learned that Dan actually went by Danny in high school. So do you have any other little bits that you can give me that I can needle him about for the next year till the next time we talk?
2: Did you just introduce him as Danny because that's what he's going by now? Like, did I give him a grant?
0: okay so we rebranded he's it. Re-branded. It rebranded Yeah, he's rebranded as danny meringue now like had, so, he changed his twitter name and everything yeah. oh my gosh well i feel yeah, honored He's really leaning into it
2: i love it i feel honored uh danny i feel like this is a huge move for you as i mentioned last time my middle brother just finally put his foot down because he was also danny forever now he's daniel um and i feel like Now I'm going to have to go back to him and say, look, this has really done wonders for my friend Danny. If you want a TV show, you need to rebrand back to Danny. This is the way to do it.
0: Or we could now start calling Danny Meringue Daniel. Yeah, no, that one's not going to work. (laughs) Okay.
2: Then you'd have to get a monocle and, like, you know, one of those Carmelo wow. Anthony hats and probably a bow tie. And it, it'd kind of turn into, like, maybe half Tucker Carlson when he's doing oh. his post game breakdowns.
0: Oh, I love the idea of, like, sort of professorial dressed, like, with, the, um, with <laughs> yeah, the blazer with the oh. elbow patches and a pipe, maybe.
1: Oh, man. See, I thought you were going to go James Harden and, like, put me in a snakeskin suit. So it's kind of a toss up. Oh,
0: God. No. Did you have to go there? Oh, man. Now I've had this vision. <laughs> All right. Okay, we're we're getting off the rails already. My first question. I'll start. I'll start with the first question. And then Dan, you jump in. But my first question for you, Ben. Now that you've been away from the Portland market for quite a while, you've been uh, looking uh, at the national landscape for for quite a while now. But this week on the Open Floor podcast you and your co-host Andrew Sharp did have a pretty good a sizable chunk of talk about the Blazers and it was it was really interesting to me because like you know, you, you're, you're still clearly, you know, have an ear to what's going on in the Blazers fan base, but you also now have this national perspective, and that's kind of why we wanted to also have you on today, because, you know, we're in another one of those Blazers swoons where they've only won four of their last 12, and we're all questioning reality and, you know, what life means and everything like that, and I was like, let's get some national perspective. So my first question for you is, how do you describe like Blazer fans and the Blazers organization like when you have to like explain it to colleagues or when you're just trying to like, think about what you're going to write or say about them? How do you describe us, I guess? <laughs>
2: No, it, it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I think the easiest uh, comparison that I can make is to try to find, like, where that person's from and then try to figure out, like, what's the most popular team or the most popular thing in that region? Because, like, the more that I travel uh, around the country uh, and even the world in some cases, you, you can find that the passion that Blazers fans have for the Blazers is comes in all different shapes and sizes. It could be a soccer team. It could be the, the NFL team. It could be a college sports team. Like, when I went to college, it was the college lacrosse team where everybody was just waking up at 8 a.m. ready to, like, pregame for the, the games. I mean, that level of passion is a universal passion, right? But it's not universal among NBA fan bases. And I think, to me, that that's always the challenge, is how do you co- convey to people that the Blazers, this professional basketball team, is what everyone in the city really cares about. Like, If you're walking through a, a random grocery store, you're going to see gear almost guaranteed. You're going to hear people having conversations about the 12th man on the team. Uh, they're going to you know, debate whether Patty Mills deserves a roster spot. Uh, they're going to say, hey, is Armand Johnson you know, the, the point guard <laughs> of the future? They're going to have those kinds of conversations. And you go around to a lot of other markets, and that is just not where the discourse level is at. Uh, in some cases, because there's other things to talk about in L.A., for example, the Lakers are huge, right? But the Dodgers are making it a deep postseason run. The Rams are trying to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, UCLA has got this whole Chip Kelly thing going on. USC is always a story. And so the allegiances are more uh, you know, diversified. And I think that that winds up shaping the kinds of conversations you have about the Lakers Uh, even within that market even with people who really really care about the lakers Uh, and so i think uh, you know that's one aspect to it. the other aspect obviously is to try to teach the history you know most people like and this was something that you know when i went to college you know people said oh you're from oregon i said yeah there's like is that near iowa i mean they have like no concept right if you're back east like oregon just feels so far away it's almost like the sarah palin like they're you know they're halfway to russia right like we could see russia from our front yards uh you know if if we're staring out over the ocean like out in canada beach or something and i think uh to kind of let people know like look this is a city that's been established it's got a long history supporting this franchise you know going back to the 70s and the the pride level in terms of the high moments of that franchise uh is basically off the charts you know i mean uh, you can compare it to like now i went down to alabama for for college football i mean going to a a Bama football game reminded me a lot of going to a Blazers playoff game in like 2009, 2010, right? I mean, people are, they've dressed for the occasion. They've scheduled their whole weekend around it. Uh, They've got signs. They've got face paint. They're all in. And, you know, there's just a lot of other arenas in the NBA where it's not like that. And so I I think those are some of the things that I try to convey when I talk about the Blazers. Obviously, I'm a very proud Oregonian, and I think that the connection between – you know, the, the franchise in the city is special. It's unique. There's lots of other franchises, you know, whether it's the Spurs or the Jazz or the Lakers, who I mentioned, or the Celtics, where they've got that really strong built-in fan base. But I think Portland is unique because it's geographically isolated uh, and because it's it's sort of an afterthought. People don't necessarily think about it. And that's kind of what I was mentioning about, you know, teaching the history. I mean, everybody knows, the you know, the Jordan draft, the Durant draft. Uh, some of the low moments, but there's been an awful lot of high moments, the the long playoff streak, uh, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, the Rip City, all the stuff that we know inside and out as Oregonians, you know, Sean Lee as a legend. I mean, telling the stories of those guys, I think, you know, winds up, you know, being able to kind of convince some people about how seriously, you know, the city of Portland takes its basketball.
0: Nice. So how about the relationship between the front office and ownership and the fan base? Is there like, you know, is it similar throughout the league, or is there something different? I mean, and I guess you could also speak to the specific situation the Blazers are in right now with Paul Allen having just died a couple of months ago. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship with the fans and the and the ownership in front office?
2: For sure. Well, the first thing I should say is that I am as guilty of anyone of taking Paul Allen for uh, for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, During some times where we were covering him, we had to be pretty hard on him because he was firing GMs left and right. You know, he was you know, basically trying to, to fire coaches in some cases. He was trading players. He was acting, you know, kind of quote-unquote irrationally because I think his level of care about his franchise was just through the roof. And when he wasn't happy, he wanted to do things his way. And that's an understandable impulse. And obviously, you look around the league, the best organizations have kind of checks and balances, right? So that you're just not acting solely by the owner's impulses. Uh, I think the reason why Paul Allen got taken for granted is because he is one of the rich. He was one of the richest people in the entire world. And you look at other franchises, there's lots of rich people own NBA teams, but they're not all equally rich. I mean, Paul and like Steve Ballmer, those guys are a whole different level of rich where you can just solve a problem by throwing money at it. Any problem at all. Hire the best people, you know, trade, take on money, you know, pay the luxury tax and all those kinds of things. That lots of franchises, that's just not even a possibility for them, or even a hope for them. Uh, you know, the obvious example would be like the Phoenix Suns, where you know their their owners getting blasted at city council meetings because of how cheap he is. And look, they're playing a completely different sport than a team like the Blazers have been playing over these last you know ten years, just because their owner doesn't want to spend money, and that's really tough. So I think it's easy to take uh, Paul Allen for for granted in those situations, but also because. He never sold the team, and he never really threatened to move it. I mean, there was, that really never gained a lot of traction. I know people were worried about that at various points, but it never really got there. Uh, he didn't try to bamboozle people out of hundreds of millions of dollars in local taxes to build them a brand-new sparkling arena. Uh, he did do some of the worst behaviors that we've seen from NBA owners. And so I think when well, you have that level of just uh, constancy, reliability, He's always there. He's always committed. He's always trying to, to put a winning team on the court. You just become accustomed to it. You be, you get used to it. I saw the same thing down in San Antonio with Tim Duncan. Their fans expect to win 55 games every year because that's what happened for 15 years. That's the only thing that they've really known. And I think that's what's so interesting about this moment in time uh, and potentially you know so scary about this moment in time for the Blazers organization is uh, lots of fans only know Paul Allen as the owner. Uh, now they have no idea what's going to happen going forward. Uh, there wasn't sort of a, a true uh, progression, you know, kind of put in place where, okay, here's who it's going to be sold to. Here's going to be the ballpark price. Here's who's going to take over, you know, and those kinds of things. I mean, they have sort of a, a general plan with his sister being in charge. And, you know, she, she may look to sell the team and so forth, but it's not really like specifics laid out. And the reason why I mentioned the word scary is because I saw what the Lakers went through after Dr. Uh, Bus passed away, mm-hmm. his daughter, Jeannie, is a genius. She is awesome. I mean, she is so passionate about basketball. She lives and breathes the Lakers. That's her entire life. She's super connected. She spent her entire professional career within NBA circles. She only wants what's best for the Lakers. Her dad set it up so that they had uh, guaranteed profitability for the next 30 years because of a TV deal that they signed, right? And yet, because they didn't have all their ducks in, in a row, the silly son, you know, Jim, who doesn't really know what he's doing, winds up screwing things up for like three or four years, and this prestigious franchise, the Lakers in this huge big market, can't even get it, like a meeting to go right with LaMarcus Aldridge. They're just bumbling all over each other, right? And it's an ownership question. And I think that's the big problem for the Blazers. When you look forward, if Neil wants to make expensive trades, if he wants to take on salary, if he wants to you know, do luxury tax stuff— if he wants to court free agents, those guys are going to want to know, like, who's the guy cutting the checks? Like, what's the plan here? Where are we going as an organization? If Damian Lillard wants to, you know, if he's just, you know, sick and tired for some reason of his current uh, supporting cast and he wants to see some radical changes, who does he go to and express those thoughts? And who's the person who's sort of motivating this team to kind of get over the hump and kind of break out of this cycle where it's sort of like, okay, you know, a first round appearance is good and, and we're happy with that. But, uh, you know, if there's a, a disappointing, if it, if it turns out in a disappointing fashion, once you get to the playoffs, well, no big deal. We're just going to bring everybody back. Like who who is the motivating force to kind of pull yourself out of that rut? And right now, you know, the Blazers can't answer that question. And it, it's just in limbo. And I think that that can really paralyze and it can hold back an organization here. And it's just really tough timing because Lillard's, smack dab in the middle of his prime and this is when you want to be as aggressive as possible trying to build around him
1: so ben from what i've gathered with, with what you've said so far it sounds like you're kind of in the same boat as me when it comes to potential new blazers ownership like I, i've heard some names thrown around i've heard bezos i've heard ellison i've also heard local and like Merritt paulson i'm not going to ask you to get into specifics but if you look at teams like Memphis or Sacramento, or other places where you've had like this conglomerate or ownership group, as opposed to the mega money you were talking about with Paul Allen, Steve Ballmer, the singular individuals who have no problem writing those checks. If you're looking at Portland, uh, from what I've at least what I got up here, you're wanting Portland to have another one of those owners, right? Singular, I mean, that's
2: I, that's the dream, right? The white whale is the Steve Ballmer who comes along and says, Hey, not only do I love this team, I love the sport. And I love the local market, right? Like, Balmer, he's already trying to build his own building in L.A. And he just got there a couple years ago. And it's like, oh, I don't want to share Staples Center. I want my own building. So here he goes trying to build it. That level of passion uh, is what makes the very best owners. And I actually think the Western Conference has a lot of those guys. I mean, Mark Cuban is not a perfect human being. There's no question he's pouring his heart and soul and a lot of money uh, into the Dallas Mavericks, you can kind of go up and down the list in terms of the Western Conference teams Warriors. that have those types oh, of uh, those owners.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, see so the Warriors. You've got of like, You've got Cronkey in Denver. I mean, you, you've got singular individuals with all of the expendable capital you could possibly imagine.
2: Yeah, and yeah, there's other situations like as the contrast you're mentioning, like all these minority owners in Memphis uh, or Atlanta. Remember, they got sold, and then they didn't get sold, and they had to get resold. And then you've got all these internal battles where people are backstabbing each other, trying to gain control of the decisions. I mean, even in Milwaukee, they've basically got two hedge fund managers who are kind of like dueling it out with each other in terms of who gets to make the decisions, right? That's not healthy. I mean, you know, the the best organizations don't really work that way. I mean, you want to have somebody who really, really cares about basketball. But I do think if you have to choose, right, if you can't find that one perfect owner— if you can get somebody who's committed to keeping the team in the city and is not looking to run it as, you know, like a, a money printing machine. In other words, they're going to be okay with staying in the Moda center for the foreseeable future. They're not going to go try to get a brand new arena. They're not going to flirt with Seattle to try to get a better deal locally. Uh, You know, they're not going to make any noise about moving the franchise. I think ultimately that is what the fans should be hoping for, is the stability factor. Because even if you have somebody who is is consumed with other activities or basketball is not their number one passion or whatever else, the most important thing is making sure that the franchise is on solid ground and the solid ground is in Portland.
0: Do you, I know this is like total projection, but maybe you've seen something similar at other times. Do you think this uncertainty affects players?
2: Uh, I do. I think the the way it would affect them the most is in free agency, right? Mm -hmm. If I, you could put yourself in that situation. I mean, anyone can, Uh, I just went through it, you know, for the first time in years, I kind of weighing different opportunities and like, you know, what's the benefit of this job versus what's the benefit of this other job. Right. But we could be honest. I mean, Portland's got some things that hold it back in the eyes of a lot of free agents. And I think most Blazers fans know that, right? Mm -hmm. We love Oregon. We've always loved Oregon. Not everybody else who's not from there. Loves it. Some people do like, you know, Duckworth and Terry mm-hmm. Porter. Like they wind up spending mm-hmm. their whole life. Jerome Kersey. They spend their whole lives there. Other guys, they just are kind of, you know, where am I? I feel like I'm, you know, 3,000 miles away from my family. I just, you know, the the culture doesn't quite mesh with me and whatever else. So I think sometimes the, the the size of the market, the small market can hold it back. I think sometimes the geography can hold it back. The rain can hold it back. So those are things when you're trying to compete for guys and they're getting multiple offers Uh, you're already having those kind of things that are being held against you. What one of Portland's best assets was is like, look, if you play well, Paul will take care of you. (laughs) And if you're really good, Paul will pay top dollar to try to grab you, or he will be aggressive in trades to try to trade for you. Um, And I think if you want evidence of that, like read Kerry Eggers' new book about, uh, you know, the quote-unquote jailblazers. Like he goes through – in very specific detail of all these different guys, including Scottie Pippen and, you know, right down the list of guys who like Paul was like giving the green light to the front office, like go grab these guys. We we really want them. Um, and I think if you're a free agent and you're looking at, at the blazers, you just don't know what's going on, right? Like Neil hasn't really landed a lot of other big free agents. He's had a lot of misses. You know, Terry Stotts is well-respected, but uh, you know, he's maybe not considered that like top five coach in the NBA Uh, The market has the question marks that I mentioned earlier, and you don't really know who the guy is signing the checks and like, what's the plan? Are they trying to be a title contender or are they just trying to be, you know, respectable? And I think that's really where it would impact players. And I also think for a guy like Damien, when you're a franchise player and you're worth, you know, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, you're kind of in a partnership with your team's owner, right? Like, yes, he's your boss. Yes, he signs the checks. But, like, the very best teams, if it's the Warriors with Steph Curry, the Lakers with LeBron James, I mean, those major players are almost owners in and of themselves, almost kind of like co-owners. They have that equity stake where, like, whatever is good for them is also good for the entire franchise. And right now, if you're Damian Lillard, uh, you're wondering, like, who's Jody Allen? Never heard of her. Never seen her at a game. (laughs) Like, does she care about basketball? Uh, You've probably got a lot of questions about what it means going forward and. You know, guys like Neil O'Shea and, and Chris McGowan can provide you some answers, but those guys aren't the owners, and the players know that.
1: So, Ben, when you when you're looking at at that, and you touched on this in the open floor earlier this week with with Damian Lillard. There, whether there's an owner in place or not, the the, the likelihood of Damian Lillard being traded is like next to zero. I mean, that's that's kind of how I had, had you, heard you put it. Like, I mean, the the things that have to happen for something like that, for that kind of trade to occur is almost astronomical, right?
2: In in my opinion, yes. I mean, unless for some reason he decides to just go 180 degrees against what he said for years about how much he likes Portland and how much he seems to like kind of being the the big fish in the smaller pond and, and all of that, I mean, unless he was the one asking out, I don't think that they would trade him because there's so many other buttons you could push, and usually... You're going to try to rejigger things around your star player rather than just trading away your star player, right? So I think, you know, you could have a coaching change. You could have a front office change. You could change the role players. You could even uh, change his sidekick in C.J. McCollum. You would do all of those things first to try to make a better product around Damian before you would go and trade Damian. At least that's how I look at it, and I would hope that's how the franchise looks at it because in the NBA, you need to sort of have a superstar franchise guy to even matter. You know, I mean, look like the Raptors, the Celtics, the Warriors, the Lakers, like the teams that are, the Bucks, the teams that are really in the conversation as contenders all have a superstar figurehead type player. And that's Damian in Portland. And if, if you take him away, you know, to me, this is a team that uh, is really strong. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be a playoff team uh, if you traded him. And I think that you, you would be in a situation where you're fighting just to keep your head above water in a Western conference that is like really, really loaded with good teams right now. Uh, and so I think for all of those reasons, it's sort of in your best interest to kind of keep him as happy as you can here during this transition period.
1: Hi right, Ben, since we're talking about transition periods and the December 15th deadline is upon us or now past of it being December 16th, everybody who was, you know, signed early on this year is now eligible to be traded and things in Portland are, are kind of groundhog day, right? going well, going well, not so well, not so well, okay, back and forth. And we're at that time of the year where Portland fans are considering, does, does Portland need a change? And the name that I keep hearing floated around is Jabari Parker. Is there a world that exists that you not only envision Parker coming to Portland, but where he can be impactful?
2: So there's two different answers to that question. First, if we're talking Jabari Par- uh, Parker, the player, and then we're talking about Jabari Parker, the contract. Now, if you're saying you can unload some long-term money and trade for Jabari Parker's expiring contract, and then that way you've got more flexibility next summer, and you let him kind of play, but he's not really like a part of your future, and it winds up being a way to sort of unload uh, whichever bad contract you're wanting to unload, then that should be something that Portland thinks about. Because right now, he's basically in a $20 million expiring contract, and that could really be helpful if you're trying to retool this team next summer. Now, if you're talking about Jabari Parker, the player, run away as fast as possible. (laughs) Uh, That that would be my, I mean, for the same reasons that Melo didn't make a lot of sense for the Blazers, I think that's sort of where Jabari Parker's at. I feel bad for him, okay? He's had multiple ACL injuries. He is still, in his mind, the number two pick in the the draft, the high school prodigy who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, a franchise-level player. And when you look at all the advanced stats, He's just not that guy anymore. Uh, He doesn't really have a major impact offensively. He does not make his teammates better offensively and defensively. He's just flat out one of the worst players in the league. And he doesn't try that hard. And I think he's going through mentally a lot of some of the same stuff that Derek Rose went through where you're just trying to put your life back together after major injuries and your whole personal narrative has changed. And man, I feel for him, Uh, but you can't, like, let him work through those issues in your starting lineup if you're trying to be a playoff team. And I think I really give Boylan, who's just had a nightmare first week as the Bulls coach, <laughs> I give him a lot of credit. Like, That's the first thing that I would have done is just not play Jabari Parker anymore and okay, now we're just going to move forward without him and we're going to be better. And sure enough, their defense improves when he's not out there on the court. So um, I-, I think the only way you do that move is if you're just dead set on getting uh, off some of the salaries and you know can you talk them into taking an in Evan Turner or you know whichever one of these other guys you're just trying to dump? Um, I think that would be the only reason why it would make sense.
0: It, it sounds like that was one of the, the cases where um, it would not be for Portland to get better basketball wise uh, initially anyway. Although I could see a narrative turning into, well, Neil Shea is so great at finding guys who just needed the right place to succeed. And, you know, Portland has kind of got a reputation as a place where guys can work through stuff. I mean, that's kind of what the story around Nurkic is. And even going back to Mo Harkless is Portland's a good place where, uh, for player development. And maybe that's just what Jabari Parker needs.
2: Uh, Well, he definitely needs some development. I mean, he needs to get into shape. Um, And that was something that we could say about Nurkic too, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that that would be where the comparison could fall. Is like, okay, if if for some reason he just wasn't motivated in Chicago and, you know, you think you can get through to him, uh, then I guess that would be, you know, a comparison you could draw between those two players. I just think that, like, once Nurkic got in shape, he was able to be kind of a plus defender. And I didn't really see that coming. I think that you could get Jabari into the world's best shape. Like he could be winning Mr. Universe. And I, (laughs) and and I still think he would be a a minus defender. Mm -hmm. And I just think that when you're looking at the position he plays, like he's stuck in between the three and four, he can't really guard either spot. He's not going to be comfortable defending on the perimeter. And he's not a very good passer. I mean, that's another issue too, where uh, you know, with Nurkic, it was like, OK, you could kind of use him selectively within the offense because he's a big man. You can feed him. He's going to try to put the ball in the hoop as often as possible with Jabara, You can really sidetrack your whole offense because he will just shoot, shoot, shoot. he will take a lot of long twos, lots of threes that he's not great at hitting. Um, and you just get yourself into a situation where, like, uh, how does he work in a functional five man group on either end? And we haven't seen a lot of evidence that he can be successful, whether it's in Milwaukee uh, or in Chicago. And that's one other difference between him and Nurkic is, you know, Nurkic was like in the worst possible environment for him in Denver. Obviously it got pretty poisoned there by the end of it, but we had never seen him in another situation to kind of know who he really was as a player. The problem is that everything that Jabari struggled with in Chicago, it was all the same things that he was also struggling with in Milwaukee yeah. So you're not the team that's really giving him his second chance. You're the team that's trying to give him a third chance. And, uh, you know, if you're doing that, you'd prefer to do that, like on a minimum contract. You don't want to be giving him $20 million this season to try to figure it out. I mean, it's just kind of a, a tricky situation to be in.
0: Right, because then if he did okay, then you'd have to pay him a whole bunch more money again. <laughs> well, no, the thing is that he's got a, t-
1: he's got a team option for $20 million next year. So if they don't pick that up, then I mean, how does Jabari look at that? You know, you don't, you don't want to touch me. You don't want to. You don't want to pay me. You know, do that. How do they balance that? And, and in his mind, I don't think he. Well, maybe he thinks he can justify that twenty million, but I, that that's just a really weird place for them to be in. Um, both the Blazers and Jabari Parker. But uh, one thing I wanted to touch on here, Ben, because we're we're talking about player movement here. God, this is just Groundhog Day all over again, really. Is this the year that Portland makes a move of substantial consequence? That doesn't necessarily mean Dame, CJ, or Nurkic. Do you, do you think that they make a move between now and the deadline that can fundamentally change the, the, the path of this team, not only this year, but kind of going forward?
2: I'm not sure I see it. I'm curious what your guys' takes are on that one because I think um, the players who would actually have trade value are all very valuable to Portland, right? So there's not a situation where there's like an extraneous piece where like, okay, we've got three-point guards. One of them is really good. We could trade them away for a wing, and that will help rebalance the roster, right? Like the guys that other teams would actually want, whether it's Dame, CJ, Nurkic, uh, or Zach Collins, uh, whoever else you might throw into that category, Aminu, you know, given his contract, I'm sure a lot of other teams would be interested in Aminu, but what does Portland look like if they don't have those guys, right? I mean, it, the the team is already, to me, kind of thin in terms of you know talented contributors, and any one of those guys that you you trade out, you know, you're you're really taking a hit to your talent base. So I, I guess I'm curious. I mean, what, what do you guys see? Do you see a big move coming uh, this season, or is it going to be a wait and see?
1: Take this one, Dara. I don't
0: I don't see a move coming. I see you know the po- the possibility of moving Aminu. To you know, get under the get under the cap or get under the luxury tax. I could see Aminu and Collins paired up together as being a valuable asset to somebody. But um, and I and I, you know if they're going to hang on to Dame and CJ and Nurkic, I mean they're not going anywhere. And I think they could work around the edges and probably finish out you know okay if they got something that was actually, you know, someone that they wanted to build with in the future by trading those two. But I just don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I am completely prepared for nothing to happen. Cause you know, the situation that we just talked about, like with the ownership, I just, I'm, I just don't think this is a good time for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting in the same boat too, is that the ownership part of it plays a big part in my mind. We saw a piece in the athletic last week that said that you know Jody Allen has greenlit a move already back in October. That uh, they that Neil O'Shea and Chris McGowan and the Blazers uh, basketball staff are in touch with Jody Allen uh, on possible moves. But I don't know how you can make a big time move for anything other than a salary dump outside of you know talking to potential owners, and we all know that's, well, not legal, that's at least in my mind what would happen. You've got checks and balances in place where if, if it is a big-time type move that they run that through intermediaries to prospective buyers, and if there's pushback on, on any of those from one of the two or three potential people that are out there that, that could possibly take ownership of the team, then you're really kind of stuck.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the report of, oh, yeah, Jody said she could do a trade, I mean, look, <laughs> uh, I, that to me, you know, it kind of made me smile because like there's a lots of kinds of trades that she could okay, right? Like, yeah. that yeah. is not necessarily that's the kind be of trade. Calling
0: up and going, hey, I really want to move to Portland. I hear it's super cool out there and everybody yeah. drops everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like, hey, the Orlando Magic want to swap second round picks four years from now, right? It's not going to cost <laughs> us anything. You're like, sure, go ahead and do it. There's a lot of difference between that and like, okay, yeah, like, here's going to be a substantial move that's really going to change this team and you know, we also hear a lot. I mean, Neil, doesn't he always have these stories about, oh, this almost happened, or we were the second guy, second team in line for this player? Like, Neil seems like he's kind of the captain of the near misses. And, you know, when I read that little detail about, uh, about Jody and, oh, yeah, she already uh, approved a trade, it just kind of felt like it was in that same category of, like, okay, another near miss. Well, how about she approves a trade that actually helps the team? That'd be fun to watch. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're all still waiting for that one.
0: Uh, I have another question that I'm curious about. We talked a little bit about, uh, Damien Lord and we talked a little bit about Nurkic and you wrote the piece about Nurkic last year. I'm curious if you have followed him much after spending you know, a bunch of time with him and kind of telling his story about the transition from Denver to Portland. I'm curious if you followed him, if you have seen anything from him that either confirms or surprises you based on the time that you spent with him.
2: Um, I wouldn't say necessarily anything that surprised me. I thought it was just fascinating, I mean, from a from a neutral observer's perspective, to watch Portland have to match up with Anthony Davis in the playoffs last year, because uh, that was something that we had kind of circled. Of like, look, guys like Nurkic, you know, the Jonas Valanciunas of the world. Once they get to the postseason, life gets really tricky, really fast for those guys. And you may have a lot of success doing what you do well during the regular season, and you can just feel like the the rug is pulled out from under you once you get to the playoffs, and You know, unfortunately for Nurkic, um, I don't know if it was the rug being pulled out from under him or Anthony Davis just like jumping on top of his bunk bed and dunking on him (laughs) over and over and over again. I mean, that was a a pretty painful transition for him. You know, that being said, I don't know if I necessarily blame him. Like, what else is he really supposed to do? I mean, that was like the best two week stretch of Anthony Davis's life. And, uh, You know, that's too much to ask of any player who's not like a, you know, a Draymond Green level defender to really, you know, match up there. So I do think, you know, some of the limitations that I explored in that piece in terms of like how long he had played basketball, uh, how he was still learning the game, uh, still learning his position, trying to talk himself into like playing big and playing tough, trying to improve his body so that he could, you know, play better defense. A lot of those things played out last year it's just when you really get tested by like the very best of the best nba players a lot of that progress can just kind of go out the window because you're not as athletic as anthony davis and guess what like basically nobody is in the entire world right so um i thought his overall season last year was uh was a success i mean i you know for them to get to the three seed with him to have kind of a career year uh for him to be the backline defender of an above average defense and pretty consistently. So uh, I thought was, you know, just about, you know, not like a perfect season, but like you would grade it as like an a, and, and certainly when I wrote the piece, he hadn't totally solidified himself in, in all of those ways. And so I guess it was pleasantly surprising or, or it was nice to see him, you know, kind of deliver on, on his preseason hype and what he had hoped for. Uh, I guess I'm curious, how much do you guys think that that has transitioned over into this season or have sort of the expectations caught up with them where it's like, okay, you have a career year. Now everybody wants you to have another one.
1: Okay, so up until the last two games, um, I, I thought Nurkic was the second most important and, and productive uh, member of the places on, on it, when you can factor in both sides of the floor. Nurk is averaging career highs literally across the board. Um, the only thing that, that took a hit is his field goal percentage and effective field goal percentage because he's what five for his last, I think, 38 after having his worst game of his career against Memphis, going one of 15, and then following that up, I think, with a was it three of 14 game uh, the other night? But other than that, he's rebounding better than he ever has. His assist numbers, I mean, he's, he's not Jokic, but he's moving into the I think the kind of the, the Mark Gasol range. As far as there 20.
0: have been some not entirely tongue-in-cheek triple double watches yeah I Ooh. mean <laughs> I mean you know he's gotten to like you know you <laughs> know uh twelve you know ten and seven or eighteen eleven and eight or whatever <laughs> but we're getting there
1: it, it, it's it's kind of a race for um who gets triple double first or dame because dame's still sitting on the goose egg
2: that's amazing. I mean, first of all, Jokic is gonna be the first center to or the first seven footer to average seven assists Wilt Chamberlain. How's that for a stat? I mean, huh. incredible. Uh what he's doing in Denver. I mean the the story between those two guys, like I really hope there's some like Balkan filmmaker who has just been obsessed with like Nurkic versus Jokic for like the last ten years. It's just, 30. Like, yeah. Can we get like the the Balkan thirty for thirty on these two guys <laughs> coming up? Because uh, I feel like their careers are uh, unfolding in tandem. You know, Nurkic, no matter how well he plays, I still think he's going to run into some of those problems that I mentioned. And if you look at some of the potential matchups in the in the postseason, I mean, I don't think he's going to fare any better uh, against Golden State than he did against, uh, you know, Anthony Davis. Um, you know, I think if you did match up with the Denver in the playoffs, you know, I think I'd probably take Jokic, although I think that would be a more natural matchup for him. Like, he'd probably have more success in that matchup. I just worry if, if Nurkic is going to be one of these players where even his, his career year regular season contributions, uh, if he just continues to hit that wall in the playoffs. You know, I think Draymond is the guy who coined the phrase, or well, I don't know, I'm sure he didn't make this up, but he said recently, you know, there's, There's 82 game players and 16 game players. And I just wonder if like in this modern NBA, the way everybody's playing now, especially in in the high level postseason games where you're switching everything, super interchangeable lineups, guys like PJ Tucker and LeBron are playing center. Like is Nurkic just going to always run into that wall or is he going to have some way around it? Or can Terry Stotts like come up with some incredible, like, you know, backdoor scheme to like, you know, keep him on the court. Uh, I guess that is, you know, my next my next step challenge for Nurkic is to sort of answer that question. You know, can you be a productive, big minute center in the postseason against a variety of matchups when everybody's going to be trying to like pick on you constantly because you're a big guy and big guys don't move as well as small guys do? Uh, I think that's sort of the next challenge for him.
1: Yeah, when you when you look at Nurkic, I think I think that's the question really everybody has because I mean I, I really look at these last couple of games as, as more of a fluke than. What he is right now, I I think that he's a guy. And Damian Lillard said it early on when I first acquired him that he sees Nurkic as being a 17 and 11 guy, um, you know, through his career. And right now, he's averaging, you know, just a shade under that at 15 and 11. And this is, I I think, at a time where Nurk still hasn't fully matured. He's still not optimizing the game, like you talked about in your piece last year about how he came to the game late. And I think we'll see him develop. Just a little bit more, just a little further down the line than some of the other bigs, just because he hasn't played basketball as long. But you touched on something there that I, I think kind of is, is the natural segue here, and that's the the Blazers in the playoffs and how they face against, how, how they match up against other teams. But in the West right now, you've got 13 teams who look like they can be legitimate candidates. I mean, the Grizzlies, the Clippers, and um, the Kings are teams that, that some a lot of people didn't have anywhere near. And they're all right in the hunt right now. When when you look at this right now, as far as the playoff picture, um, how important is it for Portland to maintain um, their momentum going into the playoffs uh, versus a team like the Kings? Like when you look at how Portland set up for this year and going forward, is, is this kind of like a make or break for this kind of for this group right now?
2: Well I think one thing I'm worried about for this season specifically is that the Blazers in the, l- the last couple of years have seemed to like play really well after the All-Star break when usually the the cream separates from the you know the rest of the crop and like you can kind of pile up some easier victories against teams that decide to tank or at least play their younger guys and I think basically everybody in the West besides Phoenix is not going to tank this year unless they get some crazy injury because I think even a team like Minnesota I think they're going to fall out of the playoff picture, but they don't really have a reason to tank because Thibodeau's coaching for his job, and like Towns, you don't really want him to go through a tanking situation. You don't want to shut him down for no reason. So, like, I think the, in in Dallas, like I don't view them as a tanking team. I think they're going to try to ride Luca as long as possible and, and stay competitive. You know, send Dirk out on the high note. Like you go down all these different teams, Memphis, Clippers, who you mentioned, like all those teams are going to be trying to win. So if you're Portland, those, you know, March wins that you've been able to stack up in the last couple of years, those early April wins where you're able to go on a nice run, it's going to be harder to do this year. If you throw on top of that, the lottery odds have changed. So, like, you know, if you're not truly terrible, um, you know, the way that they're, like, uh, divvying up the lottery odds, it doesn't really incentivize teams to try to race to the bottom quite as much. So again, you're going to have teams that I think are going to be a little bit more competitive than usual late in the season, uh, which is going to make I think a, a tough, you know, a tough task for Portland just to get in. That's not just a Portland thing; I mean, that's an everybody thing. Uh, you know, to me, this is going to be the craziest race we've seen for the bottom three spots in the Western Conference if of my lifetime. I mean, that's what I'm anticipating because it's just been that nuts so far this season. I don't think it's a guarantee that Portland makes it, uh, but I I wouldn't bet against them. Um, I do think that, you know, of the guys who who you trust on these teams, who you trust to stay healthy, who you trust to be consistent contributors, who you trust to be able to pull stuff, you know, positive things out of their teammates, Lillard's pretty high up on that list, right? Like Marcus All and Mike Conley have been lights out so far this year for Memphis. Do you trust them to be able to stay healthy for six months all the way through the season? Probably not. The Clippers, like Tobias Harris is getting all-star buzz every single time I tune into TNT. They're talking about Tobias Harris is going to be an all-star. Okay, like do you really trust Tobias Harris to carry his team to 50 (laughs) wins and a playoff seed? You know, that's a pretty high benchmark for a player like that, right? So to me, uh, I think, I I don't know if it's a make or break for them, uh, but I do think this is going to be a really interesting challenge for the Blazers in terms of, are they going to be able to have that closing push that they've had in previous years? And then does that give them a little bit of momentum, you know, going into, you know, next summer in the future when hopefully they'll have a better idea about you know who their owner is going to be and, and what that's going to look like?
0: I guess the optimist in me says if they do make it through, maybe they'll be better prepared. <laughs> they you know, they will have they will have had to fight harder. That um, And they will have had to see more of what people will throw at them, maybe, that maybe they'll have a better uh, chance in the, in the playoffs. That's the optimist in me. <laughs> I, well,
1: think uh, so I, I think this year is so interesting.
0: I think this year's so interesting because I feel like there's been many games where really good teams have had a really bad loss and there have been many games where really bad teams have beat really good teams and it's kind of all over the board. I think this year has been absolutely fascinating. And you know, well, nothing, an ex- example you just, of
2: that. Is- the other night, it's like the Bulls beat the Spurs, right? Everybody's making fun of Jim Boylan for like comparing himself to Popovich, and then like he goes out and beats Popovich. is like, wait, what's happening here? It's, it's been a pretty wacky and season. And the Suns
1: getting wins. Suns have yeah. picked a few wins in the last week when you know they, they've lost more games by 20 than games they had won.
2: Well, let me ask you guys. gun <laughs> to your head, you, are the Blazers going to make the playoffs in what seat?
1: I actually took the under on the team this year on forty-one and a half. and a half. All the things that you've talked about making that run, being healthy. Like, this is the time of year that I think this next probably six weeks kind of makes or breaks it because this is the time of year where Dame's plantar fasciitis picks up, just playing heavy minutes. I think Stotts has done a really, really good job so far this season with the exception of the last couple of weeks because Dame's had to play so many minutes to be even be in games. But they've cut his minutes back to maybe try to – push that back a little bit to where if it does flare up, if he does have the issues with it, it's more around the all-star break. And those couple days could end up serving as the, the five or six games that he's missed every year for the last couple of years in, in late December. But I just, this, I have this ugly feeling in my gut that with the team most likely up for sale, that Portland is going to make a cost-based decision at the all-star break to keep this team under the luxury tax. And I don't see them getting as lucky as they did with Nurkic, where if they move Aminu for a guy um, who's on a minimum contract, or they move Aminu package with somebody else, that the, the, the players coming in return won't be the necessary immediate impact guys to keep Portland going into the playoffs.
2: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, it's one thing to to dump Crab or to dump Vonley. Mm-hmm. If you trade Aminu, your that team's going to miss Aminu. You know, yeah. and I'm probably preaching to the choir with Terry here because I think she's like Aminu's, <laughs> are not you the Aminu Hive's like co-vice president or something am like the, that?
0: I I am the I, I run the Aminu Appreciation Society, which oh, we okay. are well, we go. are friends with the Aminu Hive. Oh, I
2: see. Okay, but it's the Aminu
0: Appreciation Society does not take a night off. Let's just say.
2: Oh, I see. All right, so it's a little friendly rivalry there between the fan groups. I mean, <laughs> no, it's well,
0: all in support of Aminu. That's the important thing. We all love him.
2: Love it. So, are, are you worried they're going to trade him though? And if so, what do you? I mean, what? What? How does this team uh, survive that? What's your prescription?
0: Yeah, I mean, I am worried that they're going to trade him, but it's a business, and what am I going to do, right? I mean, they traded Ed Davis. I liked him, but we all survived. And, uh, you know, I just, if they do trade him, I want him to go to a situation where he has a chance of making a run and getting something out of it, because I think he deserves it. I think, you know, there's people who will fill in his shoes probably, I don't think, as capably. You know, I guess they slot jake layman in maybe they move harkless around a little bit um you know maybe collins is ready to start as the, at the four you know it, it's not necessarily would be the end of the world but i would uh, certainly be sad to see him go but i mean like i said i understand what happens and maybe by then i mean collins is the last couple of games collins has had been a little bit more sure-footed than he had been for the last couple of weeks he started out great and then just kind of like He turned 21, and we're not quite sure what happened, but he seems to be (laughs) getting things back um, a a little bit back to where they were earlier. So, you know, again, the optimist in me thinks maybe he could be ready. I don't know. I think it's going to be super hard to make the playoffs. I think if they do make it, they'll be looking at, like, the seventh or eighth seed. I originally had them slotted in at, like, four, but um, I think the – yeah, I just that's going to be real hard, like for all the reasons you guys both just said.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> if you look at what Portland's done over the last couple of years, it's pretty indicative of what they've got up their sleeve if nothing else comes their way. Now, obviously, all that stuff goes out of the way if Portland makes a move for a Jabari Parker to dump salary. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm very wary of a move like that because of what it means to the immediate impact of the team, because I think that does. It does do something to their depth. Um, uh, the Parker, the the player, I, I just don't know how well it, it plays in Portland. Uh, and then on top of that, hey, hey Ben, when was the last time uh, Portland landed a uh, free agent of consequence when they had money?
2: Uh, it was Evan Turner, right? <laughs> Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I mean.
2: Um, yeah. No, so, I, I, I. I mean, but the thing is, you'd rather have the flexibility than not because you've already felt the ceiling of the guys who are there currently, right? So I think that's why I would say, like, if the plan is, look, we've got to be cheaper, we've got to cut some salary now and in the future, that's when something like trading for Jabari does actually make sense to me. Because, okay, if you can get off some longer-term money and just take another shot or just sort of try to retool uh, the supporting cast a little bit, uh, by trying to go out and find the next Aminu, which is, you know, one of the better moves that Old O'Shea made in terms of the price he got him at and oh, how well he, a he held up. deal. Right? And and so, like, that's the kind of deal you want him to be able to make, and he just can't make those, and that's why we've seen this, like, slow bleed, bleed of talent, um, whether it's Ed Davis, uh, you know, Alan Crabb, uh, Noah Vonley. I mean, that list of guys they've had to just kind of trim around the edges has just grown and grown and grown all because of those huge contracts, whether it's Turner or, uh, you know, Myers-Leonard or whoever else, in addition to the the two biggest contracts, obviously, with Damon C.J. So, um, you know, I I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if they tried to pivot here um, from a financial standpoint. But I also wonder how would the public react, right? Like, if if the only move that they make is to trade Aminu for basically nothing, you know, are people going to have the torches at one center court? Like, you know, is is O'Shea going to be feeling some heat? And would that influence his decision-making process in terms of, uh, you know, the public outcry? Because I think if I was a fan and I'm watching this team just kind of part with guys who are key rotation players, one after another after another, and the team feels like it's just kind of backsliding, and, you know, Dame's asking for help and kind of doing all these other things, you know, over the, the last year or so, and this is the move that they come up with, I think it would be pretty justifiable for people to be really, really angry about that
0: yeah I mean, I think they'll be mad, but I think that we'll have one of those press conferences where Neil Shea sits there and explains very reasonably that it within under these circumstances, we're not ready to you know shake things up, that Damien is the leader who can take us through, no matter who's coming with him. And I just I think that uh it, I, I think it's likely to happen. There's going to be a, a contingent that will be super mad. They'll be like, that's all you came up with. But then there'll be the rest of us who are just like, that's just what we've become accustomed to over the last several years. Let's just get through this season and, you know, start all over again in, in the fall. But, yeah, I mean, I understand the whole uh, advantage of Jabari's contract freeing up some money um but like you know who knows who's going to be available that's the other thing is like if they do make that move so that they can free up some money i mean i guess over half the league is going to be available but at what price
2: <laughs> for sure and you're gonna have a lot of teams you're competing with you know right. coming up the next couple of summers too there's there's no doubt
0: yeah
1: you know, that's, that's my worry with, with the free agent cap space is that, yeah, our guys like Kevin Durant coming up and Kawhi Leonard and these, these big-name guys, well, obviously Portland's not going to have the cap to for that, but they're not even going to have room for the next tier guys like a Chris Middleton where, even if you're Portland, you're going to have to play the, the, the Portland premium, which is you know a, probably a plus 10% on every deal, right? A bare minimum, just to, to lure them to Portland in most cases. so uh, And I get it. I, I've been one of the biggest proponents of, of breaking up this team and not overspending on guys. I just... I have a hard time swallowing this pill of Portland taking a step backward in dames prime punting on the year all for the sake of rectifying mistakes that you made a couple of years ago. I get that it needs to be done. And heck, I've been a proponent of it. I just don't think a, a deal like Parker is the one that makes sense. But I also get the part where, where else are you going to find a guy who has 20 million basically expiring where you, you can literally be done with it right away and not have to make a trade and buy somebody out and stretch it over so you're paying guys like Anderson Bears out and Fessy Zazili and Andrew Nicholson for years upon years, eating into your MLE for half a decade.
0: You know, all the, all that is true, but then there's, there's always that one thing where you never know what new tactic they're gonna come up with in the free agency season so like this last year it was like everybody's signing one-year contracts and it was like oh okay and we even have guys who are very talented coming in on very small contracts just so that they can you know work that into a bigger one so part of me also thinks like what is what's going to be on the horizon I Kind of already getting a little interested in how the free agency is going to work next year because they always come up with something new, and this year is going to be such a big free agency that you know they've got to be—they're going to get really creative.
1: All right, let's let's get to this last one I've got for you, Ben. It's a little bit more league-wide with this next probably month and a half with teams making or breaking. You know where they're sitting. How active do you think the trade deadline is going to be this year?
2: Um. We'll see. I mean, there was a lot of, like, you know, bluster kind of coming into December 15th when, you know, the, the guys were able to be traded finally. And we saw one, like, false start <laughs> We're star going to get a guy
0: named Brooks. <laughs>
2: <clears throat> yeah, the one false start trade and then the one actual trade. And it wasn't a huge surprise to people. Um, I think, to me, like, most of the, the the crazy contract decisions were done in 2016. And most of them were done on four-year deals. So I still think that this year is going to wind up being quieter than next year. Like, I think the true the true chaos is going to be coming in July 2020 and then, in like, in the run-up to 2020. Uh, and when you look at most of the star guys, even the ones who can be free agents next summer, whether it's Kawhi or Kevin Durant, like, the one guy who wasn't locked into his team was Jimmy Butler, and he's already been traded. He's not going to be traded again, right? I think that the wild card... Uh, the, the one superstar I'm kind of keeping my eye on would be Chris Paul. If Houston continues to play better, like they have recently and they can stack some wins together and kind of get back in the playoff mix, then, you know, he's probably not going to be a trade guy, but if they don't, uh, then he was one guy who I could see kind of coming out of left field and, and being available for somebody to kind of take on, you know, his huge contract and, and and take a shot. But when I look at the contenders or the teams that are kind of in the top five or six teams this year, I don't see major moves coming for them. I think the Lakers will try to fill out their rotation a little bit, you know, find another shooter for LeBron, uh, you know, maybe try to, you know, cash in the Catavius Caldwell hope expiring contract for somebody. Uh, but I, I think that it, it, in some, it will be a not very important trade deadline just because most of the teams that are, you know, competing for the title are pretty much finished products like Toronto, uh, Boston, Philly, Like maybe Philly makes a a few moves to sort of fill out and try to find another spread for something like that. But those teams are pretty locked and loaded with, you know, talented deep rosters that are pretty much ready to go. Um, I don't see any of those teams like trying to swing for the fences and make some crazy deal. So, uh, you know, I don't know if there'll be a high volume of deals, but I just don't think there's going to be a high volume of major impact players uh, moving.
1: All right. So when I uh, title the podcast tomorrow, Ben Gulliver says Chris Paul on the move. You're you're cool with that? <laughs> uh,
2: that that would be a little that would be a little <laughs> Ben I expect, reports. I, yes. I, I would ex, I would expect better from you. But no, I think that you know that's a that's a legitimate conversation. I mean, it, it's similar to the John Wall up. deal, right? Okay. Uh, like when you've got that much money owed to you, I would compare it almost to the Blake Griffin situation from last year, where like. Uh-huh. It was totally stunning when the Clippers traded Blake Griffin, and then you thought about it for like 15 minutes. You're like, oh wait, this makes total sense for them to trade him. Like, if you're Houston and you're not in the playoff picture, you can't afford to play pay three players 100 million dollars, right? Like, their owners knew uh, he doesn't have Paul Allen money. Uh, he's rich, but he's not like Ballmer rich. Yeah. And I think that you know, at some point, someone has to go. And it, you, if you're looking forward to like make a smart deal, you're not going to trade Harden. You're not going to trade Capella. I mean, you're going to trade the, the 33-year-old point guard who's having the worst season of the last 10 years up for himself personally and the guy who's going to be paid you know $40 million in a couple of years from now, right? So um, I don't think that means something's imminent. It's just if Houston continues to be this shaky, I think he's the biggest names of the stars so I could actually see moving in the short term uh, because basically everybody else is locked in.
0: Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time tonight. There's so much to digest over what we've just gone over. We really covered a lot. Um, do you want to? Can you tell folks where they can find you and what oh. newsletters they should sign up for and oh, all that good stuff?
2: You're trying to get on my good side by plugging the newsletter. I appreciate that. I have so many things to plug, it'll be embarrassing. Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Ben Golliver, Instagram at Golliver. If you go to my Twitter page, there's a pinned tweet. It has the Washington Post uh, weekly newsletter that I am writing. I'm going to tease for your listeners only. This week's newsletter is actually about the December 15th day that we were talking about with free agents and how the NBA has kind of become this tinderized place where uh, you can get out. You can just swipe away your problems. You can swipe away a Jabari Parker. You can swipe away a Trevor Ariza uh, because everybody's on short-term deals and they're easier to trade. and you don't have to you know bend over backwards to try to make a a bad fit work if it doesn't work you just move forward like we saw with with houston and carmelo anthony uh so there's a little essay on that and there's all uh, a night-to-night viewers guide as well so if you're interested in what games are coming up this week the newsletter has that too um also check out the open floor podcast Uh, you can find that on apple podcasts and you know we're talking twice a week uh, all sorts of nba topics and uh like you said, uh, last week's episode, we got pretty deep into the Blazers' future. And so, you know, Blazers fans might want to hear that.
0: Great. And how about you, Dan? Oh, am I, am I plugging stuff? Okay. Um, You're oh, always plugging stuff, Dan. Uh, Come I'm on. Plugging stuff. You can find me on social media as always
1: at DMARANG, at DMARANG. Um, so there's still somebody squatting on at Dan Morang and at Danny Morang. So still no avail. Stuck with the DMARANG handle. I just don't have enough juice, Ben. just don't have enough juice. James. Well, you
0: don't want to change lanes now.
1: Oh, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind getting the at Danny Murray. I mean, come on now. i got, I got a brand to maintain. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to be at the Rialto uh, for, the, for the rest of this week. We'll be there through the 21st. Uh, so if anyone wants to come down on the game nights, uh, Joe Shane and I will all be down there for the pre and post-game show. We've had a ton of people come down to check out the live show. It's been an absolute blast. We had most of the Blazers media row uh, at the last uh, away game show up and just kind of hang out and, and talk some hoops. So um, anybody feels so inclined, head on down to the reality of the free and post game show. We'll be down there and uh, have a good time.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Dan. And you can find me at TCB Biggs on Twitter. You can also follow the Hoops and Talks podcast at Hoops and Talks on Twitter. We uh, release our podcasts in the Blazers Edge podcast feed every other week. Let's see. Oh, we have to remind everybody about Blazers Edge Night. Yes. Coming up in March. And right now, you can go to BlazersEdge.com and find an article about how you can donate tickets to send. I think we're looking at 22 or aiming for 2,200 kids to watch the Blazers play Brooklyn Nets. So that was very nice of cool to pick out the Brooklyn Nets game. So everybody can go say hi to Ed Davis on Blazers Edge Night. And uh, let's see. I think that about covers it for all the things that we're supposed to talk about. Got anything else?
1: No, that's it. I just want to thank Ben for hopping on late because I know he's he's a national working man now. So So make sure.
0: It was a real pleasure to talk to you, Ben. It was great. Thank you. Thanks
2: for having me, guys. Have a uh, wonderful week, and I'll be in Portland later this week, and hopefully we can catch up.
0: Absolutely.